we're going over programming and periodization basics. So why do we care about programming as physical therapists? Well, it's pretty simple. If you periodize, if you use programming principles, you're going to have better outcomes from a strength, hypertrophy, endurance, power perspective. I think the big problem is that it's not really taught in school. And then when you have PTs, especially sports PT graduate, they're like, I know this is important, but I don't really know how to do it. So it becomes really confusing. I think the other part is that maybe you do know about programming and periodization, but you don't really know how to apply that in a physical therapy setting. So in today's episode, we're going to break this down. All things programming and periodization. We're going to be talking about volume, so sets, reps, frequency, intensity. So it's basically how close are you to your one rep max? How far are you from your one rep max? We're going to be discussing RPE, or rate of perceived exertion, as well as reps in reserve. And then we're also going to be talking about rest periods. What is the optimal amount of rest that you need between sets to optimize things like strength, hypertrophy, etc.? We'll be talking about exercise order. So essentially, which exercise should come first? What should be first? What should be second, third, fourth, so on and so forth? And does it matter? We'll be chatting about periodization. We're talking about linear as well as undulating periodization, which I think are the simplest and easiest ones to start with. All of these little things that we can manipulate, all these variables that we can manipulate are existing so that we can improve our outcomes via strength, hypertrophy, power, endurance, all that good stuff that's going to be important for the patients that are in front of us. We'll also chat about the good old SED principle, so specific adaptation to imposed demands. Essentially, your body kind of gets good at whatever you throw at it. And we'll also lastly talk about a needs analysis. We'll also chit chat about a needs analysis. So essentially, if you don't know what your athlete needs, it's really hard to program appropriately for that person. Welcome to the Fitness Pain-Free Show. This is where we help coaches and clinicians like yourself get your patients out of pain and back in the gym where they belong. Before we get going, I do have a freebie. It's an evidence-based guide to programming and periodization. It's a cheat sheet. You know I love to make these cheat sheets. I've taken all of the most important principles of today's lesson. I put them together in a nice PDF to get all the bullet points. This is 100% free. I'll put a link in the show notes in the description. Go ahead and check that out and download it. 100% free. It's going to help you a lot, both as we go through this presentation and later if you want to check back and say, oh, what the heck did Dan say three months ago whenever you need it? So what are the most important principles of programming and periodization? Well, I think one of the most important, especially if you're a beginner, is to try to keep it simple, okay? So I think a lot of physical therapists, there's a sense of elitism. There's the haves and the haves nots, right? So certain physical therapists have really mastered programming and periodization. They use it with their patients and they say it's phenomenal, right? And I got to tell you, it is a good thing and it's definitely worth learning. But I think the other part is that we're physical therapists and our specialty is really getting people out of pain. A lot of the nitty gritty programming and periodization elements are really the domain of the strength conditioning professional. So although I think you should learn it as a physical therapist, and if you are a strength conditioning professional or personal trainer listening to this, yeah, you need to master it. But as physical therapists, it's not our domain. All right. So we're going to keep this nice and simple because it doesn't have to be complicated. And the majority of the folks that I work with are very confused. I want to make it a little less confusing. The other piece that I want to say is that there are a lot of ways to get it done. And one of the things I bring up all the time with my students, so if you're a powerlifting fan, you've probably heard of Westside Barbell, okay? So Louis Simmons, rest in peace, phenomenal coach and produced a lot of phenomenal athletes. And he was a phenomenal athlete himself. So lots of world record holders, tremendously strong folks. And if you look at their programming, they did basically three really, really challenging sets for both the squat and deadlift per month, largely, right? Now, they did more than that, but what I'm saying is that they used the max effort method, which is essentially working up to one set that's really, really challenging, okay? And then for the squat and the deadlift, this would often be just a good morning. So they weren't actually squatting or deadlifting. They were just doing a good morning, and they're doing it very, very, very heavy for one set three times per month. And you know what? That produced some of the strongest athletes in the world. If you compare this to a lot of programs I'm seeing today, where folks are bench pressing four or five days per week, squatting three, four days a week, deadlifting two, three days per week, they're getting incredibly strong too, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about optimal sets and reps for strength, but the other thing I want you to keep in mind is that small tweaks to programming 
is not necessarily going to make an enormous change with your athletes. Okay. So as long as you're following these loosely, keep in mind, there's a lot of ways to do this. And you have tremendous athletes that follow these principles and tremendous athletes that doesn't look like they're following evidence-based practice. And that's okay. The other thing I like to think about is the 80-20 rule. So if you start looking through a lot of this research, they'll compare, let's say, low sets versus medium sets versus high sets. They may find that the medium or high sets outperform the low sets, but it's not by that much. So I think the Pareto principle is going to be in place here. So essentially, about 20% of your work is responsible for 80% of the benefit. So if you start to ratchet up things like uh, volume or intensity, does that increase your outcomes? Yes, but I think it's a small amount. The big thing is, are you training? Are you actually squatting and deadlifting, et cetera, et cetera? And if you're doing that, you're getting the majority of the benefits. But if we want to actually optimize things a little more, then we can start to look at some of the training variables. So what is the said principle? I learned this years ago as a young strength conditioning professional, and I think it's one of the most important things to learn. And I think it's one of the most important principles to understand. So the said principle stands for specific adaptations to imposed demands. And basically it means if you throw something at your body over the course of time, it generally gets better. Hey, do you want your biceps to get bigger? Well, if we do bicep curls, we're probably going to make the biceps grow. It makes sense. Okay. The other piece is that we have to think about what the training goals are as well as the rehab goals are for our patients. So things like pain reduction, we're trying to get a pain. We're trying to build hypertrophy. We're looking for strength, power, endurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important that we understand what we're trying to improve. And then we apply the said principle to improve over the course of time, maximize our patient outcomes. So what are the, some of the training goals that we're trying to improve with programming and periodization? So one is physical therapists. I think the big one is just trying to get out of pain. So let's say you're a grandmother and you have low back pain. If you apply some exercise, that's one of those things that will increase your function, maybe increase your strength, but it will also decrease your pain. So if pain is one of the things that you're experiencing or one of your things your patients are experiencing, if we exercise that area, it helps to reduce pain, right? And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there may be ideal sets, reps, frequencies, volumes that are going to help our patients most get out of pain. So how about hypertrophy? Generally, we think about hypertrophy for, let's say, bodybuilders or NFL linemen. Well, what about you have a patient that has an Achilles repair and now their calf is itty-bitty tiny? You need to focus on hypertrophy with these folks, okay? If that's one of your main goals, we can target it. How about strength? Well, post-op ACL reconstruction. We know those quads get incredibly weak. If we know that strength is one of those things we're trying to improve with that athlete, then we can program appropriately. How about power? Well, let's say you have Tommy John surgery, so UCL injury. You have surgery for that, and you want to get back to pitching. Do we need to be able to produce power in order to throw a ball really fast? Of course. If that's one of your goals, program for it. And lastly, endurance. We're not going to touch on endurance as much in this lesson, but it is very important. So the person that kind of comes to mind is a runner. Let's say you have a runner that has shin splints. So largely we need to get them out of pain, improve the capacity of the lower leg, slowly to get back to them running, okay? Running obviously is endurance activity, so we need to focus on cardiorespiratory endurance. We also need to get those tissues able to handle a low-level impact exercise running for thousands and thousands of repetitions, right? So if endurance is one of our goals, we can obviously utilize different parameters to achieve this. So guys, if you like what you're learning about so far, then I want you to go and check out the Fitness Pain-Free mini course. So I made a mini course that's absolutely free. That's the next logical step if you want to learn more from me. So in the course, we go over five lessons. That first lesson is how traditional schooling has failed us, right? So schooling is phenomenal from a physical therapy perspective, but doesn't really teach you how to work with high-level athletes in the fitness world, right? Doesn't always teach you how to do the lifts appropriately. Doesn't teach you about progressions and regressions of common lifts within the gym. Doesn't teach you how to program normally, how to write rehab programs or how to write injury prevention programs for these folks. Next thing we go over, seven reasons why people get hurt in the gym, four simple steps to getting your clients out of pain, how to build the career of your dreams and earn the respect of your community. It's all well and good if you know exactly how to work with folks within the gym. But if you can't get these folks through the door on a regular basis, then you're simply not going to be living the dream that you want to because you can't get the patients through the door that you want to work with. Okay, so I'll show you how to do that. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the fitness pain-free certification.
right? So I'll leave a link in the show notes. I definitely recommend checking this out. So writing a good program is all going to come down to a solid needs analysis, okay? So the patient that's in front of you, what do they need? Let's say I have a soccer player that had an ACL reconstruction surgery. Now, what are they trying to get back to? Well, they're probably going to be training five to six days per week. Maybe that's hour and a half, two and a half hours at a time. Probably going to have a game or so on the weekends. We know how long the game is. We know what's involved in soccer. So you have to be able to sprint, jog, walk. You have to be able to jump a little bit, kick. It's very important. We know the work to rest ratio. So if you delve into the literature a little bit, you can see exactly how far these athletes are running over the course of the game, how much time they're spending sprinting versus walking versus jogging. And then we can tweak the program to just get it nice and specific for that athlete over the course of time. However, in the early stages of ACL reconstruction surgery, we're not doing agility. We're not jumping around. We're not jogging, right? We're focusing on the basics, and that's improving range of motion, reducing swelling, getting the quads back on board, restoring strength, and then eventually symmetry, right? We need to look good for a hop test. And here's the thing. Those are all variables that we can tweak our program to maximize over the course of time. And once we fill all those buckets, right, so range of motion is good. We don't have swelling. Strength is good side to side. We're introducing running. It's going well. We're doing plyometric exercises or hot tests are looking symmetrical. All right, let's introduce some more game time situation stuff. We know the variables we have to tweak from a playing perspective. We can just put this really nice program together based on the needs analysis at every stage of rehab. So obviously two weeks after ACL reconstruction, it's going to look a lot different than three months, six months, nine months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important that we do these needs analysis and we also frequently update these over the course of time just to see if we're actually accomplishing these goals. So I actually just run a needs analysis and it turns out I need you to like this video and subscribe to my channel. You will be a phenomenal athlete, great physical therapist if you do. So how about in a power lifter, and let's say it's a power lifter, it's a post-op rotator cuff repair. What are the demands of power lifting that the patient has to get back to? Well, for one, they need to be able to bench press, and they probably need to be able to do this multiple days throughout the course of the week. So somewhere between one and maybe four days during the week, we need to be able to tolerate upper body strength training as well as lower body strength training, which is a little less challenge on the rotator cuff, but still important, okay? The other piece is they have to be able to tolerate really, really, really heavy loads. So at the end stages of rehab, we're going to be really concerned with building up strength of the rotator cuff, restoring symmetry between sides, and then very slowly introducing things like barbell lifts, introducing heavier loads, and then introducing speeds. And we can break this down just as we did with the ACL reconstruction example in a soccer player. So A, early on, we have to protect the area. We can't focus on strengthening, but maybe we can do a little bit to hold on to some of that muscle mass and strength. When it's okay to start loading, we start loading. And we know post-op rotator cuff repair patients are going to be extremely weak. You know, lose a lot of muscle mass because we protect that area for so long. We need to be able to program accordingly. What are the right sets? What are the right reps to maximize strength and hypertrophy of the cuff? And over the course of time, we start to introduce things like pressing exercises, probably with dumbbells at first to restore symmetry. And then we start with barbell lifts. And here's the thing. We still have to be a little bit careful with how we press those individuals, right? And at the end, I'm going to give you a little case study of a power lifter, and I'll show you how we can use programming and periodization to do two things. One, get folks out of pain, and two, progress them towards their fitness goals. If you can do those things well, you're going to be a great physical therapist. Your patient's going to love you. So what is the best exercise dosage to get folks out of pain? Well, generally, we need more research on this. Some pathologies, some pain problems have some decent research on this. A few that come to mind are ACL reconstruction surgery. And largely, if you do a little bit more, it tends to be a little bit better than doing a little less. From a low back pain perspective, there's a few studies that show if you have a little bit more exercise, you tend to do a little bit better than less. But largely, folks get better from a pain perspective with a very large variety of different exercises. I think low back pain is one of the best examples. So if you have low back pain, if you do Pilates, or if you do yoga, or if you do strength training, or if you like to maybe walk, or if you like McKenzie exercises, you can do any of those. And largely, they all kind of get you better, right? So I think that as long as you're active, and it depends on the pathology, certainly, 
We need to follow the evidence for sure. As long as you're active, you're going to make progress from a pain perspective. So I think for newer physical therapists, that becomes frustrating because we want to know what is the best possible dosage for patellofemoral pain or patellar tendinopathy. Maybe we'll know this over the course of time just by doing more research. But what we're learning now, and patellar tendinopathy is one of those kind of fun ones, it's that we used to think, oh, you need eccentrics to get better. Oh, isometrics to get better. Oh, heavy, slow loads. Oh, moderate loads. Oh, now light loads with BFR works. There's a lot of ways to do it, okay? And I think what that means is you have a lot of options. You don't have to do something specific, at least when it comes to pain. So what ends up being the solution? How do we choose the best exercises for folks in pain? Well, for one, you just choose exercises that are evidence-based. I think that's the first and most important thing, but choose exercises that are also in line with the patient goals, right? So if you have a patient and they love powerlifting and you give them a bunch of yoga exercises to help them with low back pain, how apt do you think they are to actually do those exercises, right? Probably not so much. They're like, this is stupid. I'm going to go to another physical therapist. But if you have a powerlifter that has low back pain and you're like, hey, you know what's going to help you get your back better? It's powerlifting. They're going to be like, what? That's awesome. And I tell you what, they're probably going to be much more likely to do their exercises because if you can give them the exact thing that they're basically coming to you for, right, in the first session, probably going to have to modify their program, but we give them strength training to get them out of back pain, they're going to be ecstatic, okay? So I think you're going to build a really good therapeutic alliance if you basically choose movements, A, they're evidence-based, but B, are going to help that athlete work towards their strength and fitness goals. So what is the optimal rep range to build hypertrophy in your patients? So I do want to say that a lot of the research on strength, hypertrophy, power, and endurance, it's not in patients that have pain. It's in normal, healthy folks, sometimes trained, sometimes untrained, right? There's a lot of variables we don't really know for sure. Um, when I tell you the best rep range is for hypertrophy in your patients, I don't know if it's the best range for someone that has a post-op ACL reconstruction surgery. We simply don't have all the research for that. So what I'm doing is I'm extrapolating from the strength conditioning research for normal, healthy folks without ACL reconstruction, right? So generally speaking, lighter loads, let's say around 30% of your one rep max, have about the same opportunity to increase hypertrophy as higher loads. So up to a one rep max, right? That may sound crazy if you went to school around the same time I did, because back when I was in school and when I was a young meathead trying to be the biggest, strongest guy in the world, I read lots of magazines and I also went to school and they talked about these optimal set and rep ranges for strength versus hypertrophy versus endurance versus power, right? And over the course of time, more and more research came out. You know what they found? So as long as you equate volume, doesn't really matter how heavy the load is. Anywhere between around 30% to 100% of your one rep max, right? So let's say you're doing five total sets on a given day and you do five sets of five versus five sets of 10 versus five sets of 20. You're going to have the same improvement in hypertrophy. Right. And that is not what I learned in school, but that is what our science is now saying. One thing I will say is that as a physical therapist, heavier loads for a lot of folks that have pain problems usually aren't tolerated very well. So one of the biggest modifications that I use for my patients is I take the reps, I bring them way up because usually when you bring the reps way up, the loads have to go down. If you have a patient that's load intolerant, which is going to be most of them that are coming to see you, then they're probably going to be able to train with minimal pain, feel really good, and progress with their hypertrophy at the same rate as if they were doing heavy lifting, right? And that's really powerful for your patients. You probably should tell them that too, because they're probably bummed out that they can't bench press heavy, and they think you're going to shrink away into nothing, okay? And that's not the case. There's also a potential benefit of varied rep ranges. So let's say you're trying to build out someone's quads, okay? And in the program, you do five sets of five of squats. So squats obviously target the quads. And then you do three sets of eight of lunges. And then after that, you do three sets of 15 knee extensions. So they're all quad exercises, but different rep ranges. And what our research is showing is if you vary like this, you may build more hypertrophy over the course of time, as opposed to doing three sets of 10, three sets of 10, three sets of 10. So one little known secret to maximize hypertrophy is to hit the like button and subscribe to the channel. You will be incredibly jacked if you decide to do this. Plus it helps me out a lot. How many sets are optimal for maximizing hypertrophy or muscle group? So generally speaking, more sets 
means more gains. When you look at research, it compares around 20 to 30 repetitions. It tends to build more muscle mass than below 10 repetitions. But there's probably some sort of ceiling effect, and maybe it's a little bit different from person to person. How well can you recover? How well are you recovering? Things like sleep, maybe how many calories you're taking throughout the course of the day, whether or not you're taking anabolic steroids. There's probably a lot that goes into what the optimal amount of sets is for each individual. So Baz Vol et al. in 2020 looked at a strength training program, and they were doing lifts that stressed the quads as well as the upper body, namely the triceps. And what they found is that the optimal rep range for building muscle mass in the quads was 12 to 20 sets. If you did above 20 sets, the increase in hypertrophy wasn't there anymore. So if you did 12 sets versus doing 28 sets, the result was the same. So it seems like the folks that are doing above 20, maybe they're wasting their time a little bit, right? However, the folks that were doing under 12 reps, excuse me, 12 sets, didn't have as much hypertrophy. Gergic et al. in 2021 was looking at low volume training, so under 16 sets, moderate volume training, so 24 sets, and high volume training at 32 sets. And what he found is that the 24 and 32 set group both performed the same. So again, low volume doesn't do as well as moderate to high volume. So probably depends on upper versus lower body. There may be some variables that are important. If I'm really trying to maximize hypertrophy for my patients, I'm usually thinking about doing somewhere between 20 and 24 sets for the muscle group, as long as it's well tolerated in that person. So how does perceived intensity affect hypertrophy and strength? Well, first and foremost, what is perceived intensity? So it's basically RPE or rate of perceived exertion. So when you finish up your set, let's say you do 10 repetitions, 135 on the bench press, how would you rate the difficulty of that set on a scale of zero to 10, right? The other variable that I change all the time with my athletes is reps in reserve. So when you finish a set of 10 repetitions on the bench press, how many more reps do you think that you could have done? Okay. And this is a way to kind of get a gauge on how close people are pushing towards failure. Generally speaking, and this is great news for folks that have pain, you don't have to push to failure to maximize both strength and hypertrophy, right? This is good news because you're going to have a lot of bonehead patients that come to you with shoulder pain, knee pain, low back pain. And what they're doing is they take every single set in the gym to failure. Somewhere along the lines, they got this idea that the harder I work, the more muscle I gain, right? The stronger I get. And I tell you what, that's, you know, that's true in a lot of things in life. The harder you work, the more outcome you get. However, at least in strength training, you don't have to push to absolute failure. And one of the reasons why I think that's good is because if you're constantly pushing to failure over and over and over again, you might get your way into some overuse injuries, injury of sorts. It's, it's not fun. You might end up finding yourself with an injury simply because you're just pushing too hard for your body. Kristovic in 2019 found that you can have a rep in reserve of three to four repetitions and still build strength and muscle mass. Gergic et al. in 2021 found that if you train to failure versus not train to failure, you actually had a slightly better effect if you didn't push to failure. Now, this is going to vary based on the study that you look at, but at least to me, this is a great option for physical therapists because largely when folks come to see you, they're load intolerant. A great way to reduce load and still press towards optimal strength and hypertrophy is lowering the RPE or increasing the reps in reserve, right? Great thing that we can do as physical therapists. So what is the best rep range to maximize strength in the gym? Generally speaking, the more your rep range goes closer to 100% or a one rep max, the greater the improvements in strength. As you go closer and closer to 0%, usually strength gained goes down. I'm taking a lot of this research from a meta-analysis from Schoenfeld et al. in 2021. And what he had said in the discussion is largely that as the reps go closer to a one rep max, so kind of that one to five rep range, generally speaking, the gains in strength go up. But here's the other piece. You can actually still gain some strength with very low rep ranges. So even down to 20 or 30% of your one rep max. Okay. So it's not like one to five rep range is going to be the best for strength and eight to 12, you gain absolutely no strength. And then anything above that is just a waste of your time. You're going to be building strength all along the spectrum, but it's a little bit better once you get closer to the one rep max. The other piece is that in some of these studies, they actually showed that as the reps got lower, 
it didn't increase strength gains compared to the reps being a little bit higher. So let's say 10 to 20 rep max, right? So the thing is, if you want to increase strength, we can probably get a little closer to one rep max. We probably don't have to, okay? This is also pretty nice for physical therapists because, again, we're dealing with load-intolerant people. These folks can't handle 80, 90, 100% of their one rep max. If we take that number down and do some more repetitions, maybe we're not increasing strength as much as we'd like to, but we're pretty dang close. They're getting a train effect. They're still getting a lot of hypertrophy. A lot of good stuff is still going on. And if you pick the right exercises, they're probably also getting out of pain at the same time. So how many sets of a given movement should you do to maximize strength? So if I want to improve my bench press, how many sets should I do throughout the course of a week? Now, this is actually a really cool question because a lot of us want to build strength. We're dealing with a lot of power lifters, Olympic weightlifters, folks where increasing strength is actually very, very important. Generally speaking, higher volume programs are going to lead to greater gains in strength compared to lower volume programs, right? So Ralston et al. in 2017 was looking at low, medium, and high volume programs. So essentially less than five sets, five to nine sets, or over 10 sets. And what they found is that there's a dose response. So the higher your sets go, the larger the increases in strength, right? One of the questions I had is that, well, what if you do 15 or 20 or 25 or 30? I'm assuming there's probably some sort of ceiling effect. And for a lot of athletes that I work with, this is really curious for me because I would like to know at what point are there just diminishing returns? We're not getting a whole lot out of those sets. And we're just increasing our risk of injury because we're doing lots and lots of heavy loading, right? So it seems like 5, 10, 15, 15 is going to be the best. However, it does seem like there's a dose response. So the more sets you do, the greater the improvement in strength. For that post-op ACL reconstruction, probably need to be doing 15 plus sets of a given exercise to maximize strength there. So what is the optimal frequency for maximizing both hypertrophy and strength? Well, first, if you do a given exercise for more sets, more times throughout the course of the week, it leads to greater improvements. So if I bench press for five sets on Monday versus bench press for five sets on Monday, five on Wednesday, five on Friday, your frequency is three days versus one day, the group that performs bench press three days per week is going to have a greater effect in both hypertrophy and strength. However, once you equate the volume, then that change goes away. So let's say you do 15 sets of bench press. I know that's ridiculous, but bear with me. If you do 15 sets of bench press on Monday and then you don't bench press again until the following Monday versus another group of individuals that do five sets of bench press on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, both of you guys have done 15 total sets. And believe it or not, the improvements you get with strength and hypertrophy are actually the same. Now, this one was actually pretty surprising to me to hear, because if you've ever tried 15 sets on a given day, which I definitely don't recommend, your 14th and 15 sets are going to look like garbage compared to your first three, right? So the quality is definitely going to drop over the course of time. And I kind of figured that strength would not be optimized. However, that wasn't the case with these studies. But from a practical standpoint, it makes sense to split these things up across a week. The other thing to think about is that if you have a patient with a pain problem, let's say low back pain, if I do all of their low back intensive exercises on Monday, they're probably going to be pretty dang sore, maybe have a flare up, feel worse compared to if I spread that volume across the week. So maybe Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I split up all of those exercises and have a nice even amount of stress throughout the course of the week that may help. You ever heard of the acute to chronic workload ratio? Essentially, spikes in training volumes are doing a lot in a given week compared to what you're not used to in the past. Can increase your risk of injury. If you're doing a lot on a given day, that represents a spike in training volume of a given week. So at least in my opinion, I don't have the research to back this up, spreading things out across the week is probably going to be a little bit nicer for your patients so they don't get flared up doing 15 sets of bench press on Monday. So what are optimal rest periods for both strength and hypertrophy? So what am I talking about by rest periods? So largely when you do a set of bench press and you rest one minute after that set, does that increase your hypertrophy and strength over doing a set of bench press and then resting three minutes and then going back to your second set? Well, Schoenfeld et al. in 2016 found that longer rest periods, so three minutes versus shorter rest periods, one minute actually outperforms for strength as well as hypertrophy. Now, I think this was interesting because when I was in school and reading the muscle mags back in the day, 
if you did short rest periods, high reps, short rest, pump that muscle up as much as you can, that was supposed to lead to more hypertrophy over the course of time. But subsequent research hasn't shown that. Largely, if you rest longer, so in this study, three minutes versus 60 seconds, you have greater improvements in not only strength, but also hypertrophy. One of the things that I will do for my athletes to try to increase strength and hypertrophy and being conscious of time, just because folks don't have two to three hours per day to train, right? If you try to do three to five minutes rest between every single exercise in the gym, your session quickly becomes, you know, 90, 120, three hours long, right? I utilize a lot of supersets. So largely what I end up doing, let's say I'm starting with a bench press, I may superset that with a calf raise. So the reason why this is beneficial is because when you do your bench press, you're really not using your calves very much, right? And when you do a calf raise, you're not using your shoulders and pecs very much. So the calf raise represents a rest period for the shoulders. So by the time you get back to the bench press, you're a little bit more fresh. Plus, since you did the calf raises, you got an exercise out of the way you need to do anyway, but you're more rested and you'll probably get more strength and hypertrophy as a result. Another law secret of periodization is actually hitting that like button and then subscribing to the channel. If you do that, you're going to get jacked super strong and it's going to help me out a lot. So I appreciate it. Hit the like and then also subscribe. So what does ideal programming look like to maximize power? First and foremost, maximal strength is correlated with power. So if you're doing strength training and strength training parameters, you're going to be improving your power as a byproduct of that. The second piece is, is a wide variety of acceptable loads. So you could be working with 30% of your one rep max or 80% of your one rep max and still make progress. I think specificity comes into play here. Power work for a power lifter might be dynamic effort work. So somewhere between 50 and 60 and 70% of your one rep max perform very, very quickly. For let's say a baseball pitcher, maybe doing medicine ball throws, three sets of six to eight, something along those lines. In those two scenarios, you have a very light load and you have a very heavy load. And that's just specific to what the athlete is trying to improve in their sport. The general goal with power training is try to maintain your speed throughout the course of a given set. So largely when you're doing power work, you're not going to failure because when you go to failure, the reps slow down and the quality goes down. So if you're purely working on power, you're probably going to set cut that set a little bit short so you can maximize the quality. So generally speaking, we're looking for lighter loads, we're looking for higher speeds, we're looking for non-failure sets, so we're not throwing a med ball against the wall until you can't anymore. We're doing a reasonable amount of uh, sets and repetitions where the quality is very high and we're working on maximal power. Lastly, we're probably looking for a little bit more rest because if we don't rest enough between sets, we start to build fatigue and then our power goes down. So how do we optimize exercise order for our patients? So first and foremost, from a strength perspective, the first exercise you do is going to get the greatest benefit in strength, right? So if you do leg extensions, so quad extensions on a machine, followed up with squats, and you compare that to someone who squats first and then does knee extensions afterward, the knee extension first group has a greater improvement in knee extensions. The squat first group has a greater improvement in squat strength. From a hypertrophy standpoint, it doesn't seem to matter. So if I'm looking at growth of the quads and I squat first versus doing leg extensions first, right? Or I flip it and I do my leg extensions and then I squat. It seems like at the end of the day, you have the same amount of hypertrophy. So at least in my mind, it makes sense. You put the strength exercises first and then you can put the hypertrophy exercises afterwards because order doesn't seem to matter. I also am a big fan of incorporating power and skill work prior to doing my strength and hypertrophy work. Now, why is this? Well, when we're doing power work or skill work, we're not going to failure. So the amount of fatigue is not very high. And generally speaking, when you do a bunch of skill and or power work, it doesn't take away from the strength work that follows. The other piece is that if you're doing a lot of power work prior to doing your strength work, you may improve the amount of strength that you have via post-activation potentiation or PAP. That's just a fancy way of saying that if you try to move very, very quickly, you prime the system so you might be a little bit stronger during your heavier strength sets. So how about endurance? If I'm putting conditioning or endurance work into my strengthening program, how is it going to affect my outcome? Well, if you put the two together in a single program, and it doesn't seem to matter too much what the order is. So if you do conditioning and then you do strength afterwards, or if you do strength and you do conditioning, Generally speaking, you're not going to have as good of improvement in your strength than if you did just strength alone. 
Okay. However, if you split your endurance or conditioning work around three hours apart from your strength work, that attenuates that effect. So largely, if you're going to give your athlete a lot of conditioning, it makes sense. Do it later in the day, do it in the morning, do it on an off day. It doesn't seem to matter if you do your conditioning three hours before or three hours afterwards, you still have the same improvements in strength. It's just important that we split these things apart a little bit. So what the heck is periodization? Periodization defines manipulating training variables in a cyclical, nonlinear manner through specific fitness phases. So largely over the course of time, when you're working with a patient, you change the parameters a little bit. So that might be the intensity. That might be the volume. Maybe start to incorporate a little more power, a little more endurance. So things change slightly over the course of time. Now, why the heck would you do this? Because we have quite a bit of research to show that a periodized program is going to lead to more strength and hypertrophy compared to a non-periodized program. So it makes sense. We should learn how to do this. So I think that periodization can get very, very confusing, but it doesn't have to be. So I'm going to go over two very simple forms of periodization. You can very immediately put into your patient's program. The first is linear periodization. So largely in linear periodization, you're moving from training with a lot of volume and low intensity. And over the course of time, it flips. So you start to increase the intensity and decrease the volume, right? And if you do this, you get better a little faster than if you just kept it the same every single month, right? Let's say you have a patient that has patellofemoral pain and you're going to utilize a squat to get them out of pain and you want to periodize the program because your athlete actually wants to get stronger with squatting, right? So great exercise to use. Early on, after they hurt themselves, they can't tolerate heavy loads, but light loads, they might be able to tolerate really well. Well, this works out great for linear periodization. Why? Because usually you're starting with lower loads, low intensity, and doing higher volume, which it seems like this patient is able to handle. So let's say on their first month, when they squat once a week, they do three sets of 10. Then on month two, they're doing three sets of eight. So what do we do? We just increase the intensity slightly and drop the volume. Let's say month three rolls around, they do four sets of six. Again, we're just ratcheting, ratcheting down the volume, increasing the intensity. And maybe on your final month, you do four sets of five. At that point, patient's feeling pretty good. They feel like they can continue slowly increasing the load over the course of time. You've gotten them out of knee pain and you've gotten them stronger and you maximize their outcome because you use linear periodization. Simple, right? What the heck is undulating periodization? Undulating periodization is frequent variations in volume and intensity that occur daily or weekly, right? So unlike linear periodization, where you're changing things a little less frequently, undulating periodization, you change it pretty dang often, right? So here's an example below. Let's use the same back squat example. So let's say week one, you have your patient doing three sets of 10. Week two, four sets of eight. Week three, three sets of 12. And week four, four sets of six. Now I'm actually a big fan of undulating periodization. I use it all the time with my athletes. It's just that sometimes it's not the best periodization strategy for folks because there's so much change, especially with intensity, right? So let's say you're starting with three sets of 12 and the next week you're down to four sets of six, right? You undulate it. That's going to lead to better gains. However, you also spike that intensity. If someone has a lot of knee pain, they might not be able to handle that. So the linear periodization works a little better in that instance, but for folks that aren't that irritable or you're trying to prescribe accessory programs that aren't really irritating the injury and feel free to undulate those things. So what are some practical takeaways for physical therapists? Let's say we take a typical powerlifter that has low back pain. Let's say they typically train four days per week and they utilize an upper body, lower body split. So they're going to have two days that are squat and deadlift emphasis and two days that are more bench press emphasis. When it comes to the upper body, they don't have to change much of anything. So you may find in the bench press, it hurts to have an aggressive arch. And a lot of folks with low back pain that are powerlifters may not tolerate that. Let's say this individual is fine. It doesn't hurt to arch in the bench press, so we don't have to modify anything on their upper body days. In terms of the lower back, let's say they're not tolerating heavy loads on both the squat as well as the deadlift, which is very common you'll see with athletes. So a lot of folks might come to you with low back pain, and you take them through an evaluation, and they're not that irritable, but it only really hurts when they get above, let's say, 80 85% of the one rep max. Then they can't really push. So what happens is that they can't push those higher loads as they're approaching their three reps, one rep maxes. So they're coming to you because they want to get out of pain. 
They're looking to improve their one rep maxes, so bench press, squat, and deadlift. Obviously, the squat and the deadlift are problematic right now. And let's say they also want to get a little bit bigger. So their goals are not only to build strength, but also hypertrophy. So let's say you go ahead and do their evaluation and you find that back squatting just isn't going really well, right? So you load up their back squat. It just starts to really bother them, hurt them so much. They can't really load the squat that well. So you go about trying a few modifications and it turns out that front squats feel quite a bit more comfortable, although you can't go too heavy with them quite yet, right? Bunch of research to show that strength training is helpful for low back pain. So my power lifter wants to get out of low back pain and wants to power lift. It's a no brainer that we prescribe squats to help them get out of pain. So utilizing a front squat does two things. It's going to allow them to get out of pain and two, it's going to keep them working towards their training goals. Maybe not as well as working on a back squat, but it's pretty dang close. The problem with offloading the squat completely is there's going to be a deconditioning effect. So if you have the same athlete that comes in, hurts the squat, and you keep them from squatting, they're probably going to get better over the course of time with some sort of other exercise. It's just that they're also going to get weaker. So every time I'm still able to work towards someone's training goals and simultaneously rehab them, I'm going to take that opportunity. Plus, this person really wants to power lift. If I'm giving them powerlifting exercises, it's going to help them. They're going to feel better. They're reaching towards their goals, right? And they're much more likely to do the program. So let's take a snapshot of a program that I write for this individual. Let's say their day one is their squat emphasis day. On this day, I'm going to prescribe front squats because we found they felt pretty good. And I'm also going to increase the rep range. We talked a little bit earlier that this person is load intolerant. So largely, they just don't tolerate five rep maxes, three rep maxes, one rep maxes. So we're bringing those repetitions up. So for that first month, I'm prescribing front squats, and I'm prescribing four sets of 12 repetitions, and I'm using a four rep in reserve. So a couple things here. I have 12 reps. It's actually very high for a power lifter. A lot of power lifters are going to roll their eyes at you, but if you tell them like, hey, this is going to help you long term, they'll probably end up doing it, right? So 12 repetitions, the reason why I chose this is because you can't use as much weight when the reps get higher. This person's load intolerant, so obviously we're dropping that load simply by increasing the repetitions. So I really don't know what the best intensity to hit the like button is or to hit the subscribe button, but I feel like you should do it right now. So go ahead and hit that. It helps me out tremendously. The next part is I'm using a rep in reserved. We just talked extensively that if you reduce the rep in reserve, you still are going to improve at a very similar rate than if you were trained to failure. And when we're lowering the RPE or increasing the rep in reserve, we're also decreasing the load. This person isn't tolerating loading well, so we're taking the load down in a variety of ways. So one of which being the exercise modification, front squat, second of which is going to be raising the reps, and third of which is going to be increasing the rep in reserve or reducing the RPE. Let's say your athlete goes through the program for four weeks and they come back to you and say, you know, the program really went really well. My back's feeling pretty good. I'm ready for the next step. Okay. So we're trying to periodize for these folks, right? Because we know periodization is going to increase their strength, increase their hypertrophy, both, both of which are major goals for the athletes in front of you. So I'm going to use a linear periodization model. I think that's the easiest type of periodization to apply. And it's very, very simple. So on month two, all I'm doing is I'm changing the modification slightly. We're going from a front squat to a back squat. And the reason why I'm doing this is because the back squat is closer to the competitive lift. However, I'm using a high bar back squat. Reason being is that generally speaking with a high bar, you're a little bit more upright. It's a little bit easier on the spine than a low bar. And this person is not quite at the point where they're able to tolerate low bar back squatting. So we are dialing up the intensity just by making the variation we choose a little more challenging for the spine. The second thing that we're doing is we are very slightly reducing the repetitions. So as opposed to doing four sets of 12 in the first month, now we're doing four sets of 10. I just knocked off two repetitions from their set. Now, what this does is it naturally is going to increase the load slightly. Okay. So we're going from sets of 12 to sets of 10. From a periodization standpoint, this is good. We're following linear periodization. The back is getting a little bit better over the course of time. We're getting closer and closer to the patient's goals. I am still utilizing a rep in reserve. We started with a four rep in reserve. This month, we're doing a three rep in reserve. So that's naturally going to dial up the intensity a little bit more. So now their loads are getting more and more week after week, month after month. So this style of linear periodization works extremely well for folks that have pain because largely we start with a higher volume, lower intensity, which is tolerated very well for most spines. And then we start to go down slowly over the course of time, a little less volume, a little bit more intensity. 
let's say your athlete is doing really well. They come back at month three. They're ready for the next set of exercises. And what you decide to do is go back to a low bar back squat. They've made a lot of progress over the course of time. You've tested them a little bit. You try the back squat in a low bar position and actually feels pretty dang comfortable. So we can start to load a little bit more here. We're still following our linear periodization. So we started with four sets of 12. Second month, four sets of 10. This month, we're going to go down to four sets of eight. And really, all we're doing is increasing that intensity very slowly over the course of time, which is nice for that spine because it likes slow, consistent changes in intensity, which allows us to rehab over the course of time well. I'm also messing around with a rep and reserve again. So now we're down to a two rep and reserve. So you can see the intensity is going to get more and more and more over the course of time as the patient gets better. So as we make more progress over the course of time, largely I just start to take the intensity, slowly ramp it up and take the volume and slowly ramp it down. And that's one of the tenets of linear periodization. So at month four, we're doing low bar back squats. We're doing five sets of five at a two rep and reserve. Month five, we're doing a low bar back squat, five sets of three at a one rep and reserve. And then month six, we're doing a low bar back squat with five sets of one at a zero rep and reserve. So largely we'd be peaking for either a meet or this person wants to PR within their training environment, whatever it is. But you can see very naturally from month to month, we're just dialing up the intensity. And we do that by reducing the rep and reserve and lowering the repetitions, simply just by taking the repetitions lower and lower over the course of time, the volume is going to go down naturally with that. So what you did is you took a power lifter that was load intolerant. We start with a lot of volume. We periodize very well, and we slowly reduce the volume over the course of time. And we increase the intensity, linear periodization. This person is now able to do a, a one rep max, really push their strength. They're happy because they got out of pain, but we also were able to use these periodization principles in order to maximize their strength improvements over the course of time, maximize hypertrophy, all that good stuff to really maximize our patient's strength over the course of time. Let's get back to the show now. All right. So largely that was just the squat. Okay. When someone comes in for a program from you so they can keep powerlifting and rehab at the same time, you're probably not going to give them one exercise. We're probably going to give them a full program, right? So how do we use programming and periodization to maximize their outcome over the course of time? Well, they largely want to get bigger and they want to get stronger. So from my hypertrophy standpoint, how can we maximize their muscle mass? How can we use set and rep principles to maximize this? Well, for the lower back, hamstrings, and quads. And these are all areas I want to improve from a strengthening perspective. Obviously, the lower back and the hips are going to be important because we need those to lift heavy weights, and they're currently painful. So applying exercises is going to get them stronger, but it's also going to help to rehab the spine. We also want to train the quads because those are big-time helper muscles within the squat. So if my quads aren't strong enough, I'm going to overutilize my low back and hip musculature potentially. So it's important that I get the quads going as well. They're the helpers. And we can utilize a rep range that we know to be very effective to increase hypertrophy. So I largely am selecting somewhere between 12 and 20 total sets for this athlete to maximize the hypertrophy of these muscles. We're also going to be using the said principle. So specific adaptations to impose demands. What do I mean by that? We want to choose exercises that we know are helpful to build the squat as well as to build the deadlift. Okay. So from an exercise selection standpoint, I'm going to be utilizing good mornings, belt squats, reverse hyperextensions, 45 degree back extensions, all exercises we know that are both very helpful for reducing low back pain, but also are very helpful to help build the squat and the deadlift. What's really cool is that we can do the both of these things at once and really help our powerlifters out. How about intensities? So largely with accessory exercises, we're usually not going super low in terms of our repetitions. However, we know that the closer we approach one rep max, the more strength we're going to build. Trouble is our athlete is not tolerating really heavy weights in the very beginning of the rehab. So usually what we start with is going to be a higher volume and a lower intensity. So what that means is that when we're choosing set and rep ranges, we're going to be starting with maybe three sets of 10 right? Four sets of 12, something that's north of eight repetitions. And over the course of time, we can lower those repetitions down, maybe work our way down to sets or six or so. We don't have to go crazy heavy, right? It's an accessory movement. However, we still want to creep a little bit closer into that five rep range, just because the patient's main goal is to build strength for the deadlift and the squat. We can also dose intensity by choosing a rep and reserve that is initially a little bit easier. So let's say we start with a four rep and reserve. And over the course of time, we just make that rep and reserve less and less and less. 
Again, they're accessory exercises. We don't have to go bananas here, but we can very easily start with a four rep and reserve and our work our way to a two rep and reserve over the course of time as the spine starts to improve and it just tolerates more and more. So what do we do with frequency in this person's exercise program? So largely they're already doing an upper lower split, which means they're hitting their lower body two times per week. One of my goals for these athletes is to try to stress the spine or the injured area three days per week. And this is largely just because a lot of our literature will show that folks are getting exercises somewhere between three times a week and maybe upwards of every single day. And that seems to be helpful from a dosing perspective. In my mind, two days a week might not be enough. And the other piece is that if we're doing two very big lower back intensive days per week, you might leave your athlete pretty dang sore after each session just because it's a big spike of volume every time they go in the gym. So what I'd rather do is spread out the volume across three days, which ends up being a little nicer for that person's spine. So we just give them a third day. where We work in some of these lower body exercises on one of the upper body days. I also like to try to have a day's rest between sessions, if able. I just think that's helpful to allow the spine to kind of chill and relax a bit. We're not hitting back-to-back -back days, doing too much and getting excessively sore or painful. So how about rest periods? Well, we just learned that longer rest periods are more beneficial for strength and hypertrophy. My patient in front of me wants to get bigger and they want to get stronger. So I should probably utilize longer rest periods. So generally three plus minutes in between sets. Now, one of the things that I use in order to be more efficient in the gym and still try to get a longer rest period are supersets. So one of the things that we can do is we can take a lower body intensive movement and superset that with something that doesn't take up too much energy or stress the same muscle group, right? So if I'm doing, let's say, a deadlift in the gym in between sets, maybe I can do some arm work, something to be a little bit more efficient, add a little bit more total volume to the person's program because you know that's beneficial, works in line with their goals, but allows them to get their workout done in a reasonable amount of time. And what are we doing from an exercise order perspective? So our two main goals are going to be strength first and then followed up by hypertrophy, right? And our patient doesn't really care about their knee extension, one rep max. They care about their squat, one rep max, right? So in terms of which exercise go first in the program, it's obviously going to be the squat variation or the deadlift variation, right? And those movements that are used more for hypertrophy are going to be a little bit later in the session. And that's for two reasons. One, the person doesn't care about hypertrophy as much as they care about strength. They're trying to build their one rep max and squat and the deadlift, their powerlifter. That's what they really want. Second piece is that from hypertrophy standpoint, doesn't really matter which exercises go first, right? So if this individual is going to do 45 degree back extensions and they're going to do squats, generally speaking, it shouldn't matter which order you put them in to maximize hypertrophy, right? But if they're trying to build their squat maximally, if we put back extensions first, that's actually going to limit the amount of weight that you can use on their back squat, okay? So obviously we're just gonna squat and deadlift first within the program, and then after that we have our accessory movements. So now you know how to periodize for an athlete that has low back pain, but you still don't know the good exercises to get them out of pain. However, I have a really nice video that's going to show you exactly how to do that. So I want you to go ahead and click a link. I think it's in that corner over there, and you can go over five great exercises for low back pain. I'll see you on that video.